Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, licensed therapist. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and like us on Facebook. And please send emails to contact at psychologyinseattle.com. We always love hearing from our listeners. And I'm Umberto Casagna, and I play keyboards for a top Canadian folk slash death metal band. Really? Yep. Interesting. Well, today's topic is on projective identification. Have you heard of this concept before? No. This concept was introduced by Melanie Klein in the 1940s and then further developed by other object relations theorists and psychoanalytic thinkers over the decades. That's before my time, so that's why I've never heard of it. That's right. Have you ever heard of Melanie Klein before? Calvin Klein. (laughs) Yes, actually, no. But first, before we go into the concept of projective identification, I thought we'd do a little exercise, a little pre-exercise. Okay. So I'd like you to make a list of the five people you dislike the most. Okay. Those of, those of you in podcast land can play along. If possible, these people should be people you interact with as opposed to celebrities and politicians. People uh, I interact with, do I have to name names? Uh, on your notepad, yes, but not, oh, okay, okay. not necessarily in the podcast. People I dislike the most. Yeah. Write down those people that really make you angry. Those people you have the most emotional reaction to. Okay. Uh, five, you said. Five, yeah. I mean, if you can get to five. Yeah, I can get to five. <laughs> um, actually, I'm kind of struggling. Oh, I know. Okay. Okay, got it. Now, next to each person, write down the characteristics you hate most about these people. Okay, like just one or two characteristics or the top characteristic? Um. Yeah, just the most salient that uh, bother you the most. Okay. And so these should be aspects of, of character. Okay. Now make a list of the last three or four times you felt the most affection for someone. Again, these people should be people you interact with. Write down those moments when you felt the most love, when your heart was made warm by someone. He's writing stuff down. He has... I only have three. <laughs> no, hold on. I need five, right? No, three or four. That's fine. Okay. I mean, these, I feel these are very obvious. So, um, Your penmanship is almost as bad as mine. <laughs> um, All right. Again, next to each person, write down the characteristics that provoked your loving response. Again, these should be aspects of character. Okay, so we'll put that list aside, and we'll come back to it later, okay? Great. All right. The most common definition of projective identification is it's a process wherein an unconscious conflict is reenacted in an intimate relationship. This reenacted conflict reflects the meaning and affective experience or the feeling experience, the emotional experience that was internalized as a child. Thus, the self is able to re-experience the harmed self in relation to the original harming object or the self is able to act like the internalized object, the harming object, against the unwanted aspect of self. Does that make sense? It's an interaction with, with someone or a situation that's actually not the same as whatever harmed you as a child. But in that moment or to that person, you ascribe certain, subconsciously certain things that might remind you about that experience. And so you end up projecting, essentially, and and either reacting a certain way that recreates your your experience traumatic experience 
or uh, acting or reacting a certain way. Right. Some of that. Yeah. yeah crudely, that's a, a crude. <laughs> Who are you calling scruffy looking? <laughs> um, actually, we'll come to him later. Um, in other words, we recreate past conflicts in our current relationships. And we identify with either side of the past conflict. So we either identify with the part that was us in the past, or we identify with the part that was the other in relation to us, and we project the us original character onto someone else. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Well, if it doesn't make sense to you in podcast land, we will we'll demonstrate this in a second. For instance, if someone was abused as a child, they might recreate this abusive relationship in their adult life by either taking on the abusive role or the victim role. But the interaction is the same or reminiscent of the, of the original interaction. Now, additionally, within the process of projective identification, the other is perceived as being, which is what you were talking about, Umberto, meaning projection, and is induced to take on the behavior and feelings that complete the interaction. In other words, we manipulate others to agree with our projections so that our recreation is more believable to us. And this is all an unconscious process. Um, we're not aware of it. I don't know. To me, you're sounding like uh, an abusive second-grade teacher who's very preachy. Don't you agree with me? <laughs> um, actually, so using that example, how could you induce me to become an abusive or domineering didactic teacher? How could I induce you to not be that way? No, how could you induce me to be that way? Oh, right. Because I might, I might, I might say things like uh, disruptive, like while you're talking, I might, right. I might be talking in class kind of thing, like right. interrupting you, uh, saying things out of topic, um, and then you actually start maybe in acting unwittingly, kind of like, well, stop, I'm trying to talk here, or right. pay exactly. attention, <laughs> sit exactly. up straight. Exactly. So... You would do that unconsciously to force me into or to manipulate me to hopefully force me into a position where I have to be mean towards you. And then you can say, see, you're you being just like my second grade. Yeah. <laughs> or, and well, you might not necessarily know that I would be just like your second grade teacher, that that was the original conflict that you oh, were. But I might call out the reaction. See, you're always dictating to me. Right. Always. So let's get back to your lists. So you're looking at a list of five people that five you people. have an emotional reaction, a negative yeah, emotional I, reaction. I don't know if it's all always hatred, but it's certainly a strong emotional reaction. Okay. Against. Okay. Pick one of those people. And okay. You, you don't have to say their name. Yeah, yeah. So in this case, this person, this person is dysfunctional. Their whole life is completely dysfunctional. Dysfunctional. Yes. Like, what does that mean? Meaning uh, they're constantly indebted to everyone around them both financially and, and emotionally, I guess. Okay. Uh, they're a drain to everyone around them. Okay. And uh, they, they, cannot, they cannot maintain themselves in order at all. Uh, and yet they're, they're, they're always, there's always some new problem that, they, that they're asking you for help with. Okay. So externally, this character aspect manifests as being irresponsible with money. That's one of the things. That's definitely one of the things. But underneath the irresponsibility with money, might it be just irresponsibility or might it be something lower than that, like even disregard for other people's feelings or what it is? Right. Is there something that's beneath that? Uh, uh, there's, okay, so if you're peeling off the layers, right? At the top level, there are these superficial, like, well, he's really bad with money. 
then you can maybe go a level deeper and say, wow, he just doesn't seem to take other people's feelings into account, right? But then you go like, I don't even know that he's, that he's aware because he's just manipulating people, but he's manipulating people for the wrong end because he's not getting ahead himself. It's like, you know, you, you look at a mob boss or someone who's a criminal. Yeah, obviously they're antisocial. Obviously they're manipulating people. So this is not an excuse, but you can see that, oh, but they have a million dollars in the bank or, hey, they have a house in Tahiti. Granted, still antisocial, right? They're getting some benefit out of the deal. In this case, this person's not even getting a benefit out of the deal. Okay. So not <laughs> only not only is he insensitive, he mm-hmm. not only is he insensitive, but he's also what? Foolish, would you say? Uh, foolish. I get I guess um, uh, how do you call this? Unrealistic, uh, d- delusional. Delusional. And I don't mean it like psychotic delusional. I mean it like his perception of reality is very disconnected from what actually is his reality and that, that of those around him. Okay. So, so is the disconnect or the delusion, as you're calling it, result? Does does that aspect result in them being more insensitive to people, or does it just make them more insensitive? Okay. So, and in fact, the sensitivity only seems to manifest as a result of intended manipulation rather than honest. Uh, sensitivity. So maybe you might conclude that he's in denial of how he impacts other people, and that makes him disconnected from how other people are impacted by his actions. That could be, yes. So not only insensitive, but uh, selfish, manipulative to his own benefit. Yes. Okay. All right. Now, are you ready for the next phase here? I think so. Okay. So if we, if we base this all in interactions, which in my view, object relations is all about is we have an, a manipulative, selfish, hurtful person on one side. And then on the other side, you have a, what, hurt, manipulated, discounted person. That's right. Okay. So, and you... One are, of which is me, and there's many others like me around this person. Okay. Uh, By the way, I'm curious to see who calls me after this podcast to say, is this me? <laughs> I wonder if people like start feeling defensive. <laughs> well, they'd probably be so disconnected that they that won't. Could, that's, that's actually true. Yeah. All right. So that's the interaction. We have a selfish, manipulative person, insensitive, and then you have the other person who's hurt. Okay. So now if we go back to your childhood, can you identify an important relationship where that interaction was occurring. Yeah, I, I do believe so. I, 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 I think I had several relationships like that as a child. Uh, there were certainly my, my parents had aspects of this. I think there were people in my extended family that I had contact with in some frequency that maybe they weren't directly like this to me, but I certainly saw them being like this to others in the, in the family. Right, without going into very specific detail, right? right. Um, now, I know... Well, there was the alien kidnapping, but that's, you know... They were disinterested? I thought they were very interested. Oh, in certain parts of me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, at this point, I'll say that I know enough about your history to know that this kind of relationship of being insensitive and the other person being hurt is a significant theme in your childhood. That we might say everyone has been discounted and disrespected and hurt, right? But I know that for you specifically, this we would call an issue of yours, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Wait, wait, what, are you discounting my feelings right now? <laughs> so um, I'm hurt by that. I'm um, hurt. 
So we could hypothesize that these early childhood experiences between you and these other people, basically of you being hurt by them being insensitive, you have internalized that interaction. The way that I see it is that we have a deep self, so to speak, that observes us interacting with other people. So our deep self is observing how us being hurt and observing the other being insensitive and relating that to a bad feeling. And we internalize that. It goes inside of our psyche. And so now not only have we internalized the hurt self, but we've also internalized the insensitive aspect. And both of those become a part of us. You know, I don't care about this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Because we can't differentiate the good and the bad in our caregivers. We internalize all aspects of Mm -hmm. them. Uh, We're not, as two-year-olds, able to say, I think I want to take after that aspect, and that aspect in my parents I don't want to have. The idea is, is that children are extremely anxious about surviving in the world. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but... I know, I remember when I was a young child, I was terrified of the world. Everyone was tall. I had no idea how to do anything. I depended on my parents. And so we figure our best strategy is to absorb everything that our parents are because they seem to be surviving pretty well. And we put them on a pedestal. They're like gods to us so that we can survive, right? Interesting. Yes. I mean, it's certainly up until a certain age. Or some kids may realize younger than others that there are some two painfully obvious dysfunctions within their caregivers that they have no choice but to start not directly emulating it, but the damage psychologically might already have been done. Right. The aspect has already been absorbed. Yeah. So going back to your example, someone being insensitive to you, you being hurt, you internalizing that repeated experience from significant people in your life. Now you have the hurt side of you and the insensitive side of you. Um, But who wants to admit that they are insensitive? People don't want to admit that they have bad qualities to themselves. I don't think I'm insensitive. I think I'm very sensitive. (laughs) I'm sure you are. I'm sure you are in certain contexts. We all... Curb your enthusiasm. Oh, is it? (laughs) Yeah. He's like, I don't think that's insensitive. I think that's sensitive. (laughs) Um, I was being affable. I just just remember that episode. I was being affable. So all of us have aspects of ourselves that we're a little ashamed of. And some of these aspects we're aware of and some of them we're not. Depending on how much work we do, depending on how negative these qualities are to us. Um, But everyone has these. And you're included in this, Umberto. So... Now, we have the beginning of the equation, which is your early childhood, and we have the very end of the equation. Now we have to fill in the gaps. But the very end of the equation is you are seeing this person in your current life as insensitive. Mm-hmm. Now, we just have to connect the dots. I, I tended to, along the way, find myself befriending some, some folks, that some of which are some of my best friends, that you know at times have definitely exhibited these patterns as well. Okay, so that that's an example of one aspect of projective identification, which is that we seek people that seem to possess the aspects of ourselves that we dislike. They're very convenient friends. Mm-hmm. We don't know why we're attracted to those people. Partners are included, romantic partners, in that we don't know why we're attracted to those people, but we're partially attracted to them for dysfunctional reasons because they are easy targets for 
for projecting our crap onto. Right. That's why sometimes our friends are our worst enemies. Right. Uh, how else can you connect the dots? I have exhibited the same aspects of the same behaviors towards people along the way. And, um, and in those cases, I missed out on opportunities for maybe healthier friendships or healthier relationships because it, it subconsciously scared me. And I behaved in the ways that, that, I, that have hurt me before okay. to push that away. <laughs> right. How is it to admit that? Um, it's, it's tough, right? Because, but then, you know, I look back at specific instances and I'm like, well, that was really selfish of me. That was really like, uh, not, uh, caring of me. Okay. That was uh, fairly abusive of me. Okay. Right? Okay. And, um, the, that's actually tough to, to see. Right. Tough to admit. A tough lot. to admit and, and even tougher to, to be like, actually the way I think of myself is an incomplete picture because there's this other half that I I don't acknowledge. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, you're a big man to admit that. So you have these memories of times where you have been insensitive to other people in the exact way that people treated you when you were a child and making the other person feel the way you felt when you were on the bad end of that equation as a child. So the last step in the equation is to identify times where you actually manipulated this person that you're thinking of into being... Into maintaining that role or, or yeah, to being that role? Into being more <laughs> insensitive. The underlying unconscious motivation is to get rid of the negative aspect of yourself. So there's a couple ways. There's, there's a few ways of doing it. One way is to seek people that have that aspect or seemingly have that aspect. That's an easy way to get rid of that, of that aspect by projecting. Another way we do it is by manipulating others to actually be that aspect, be insensitive in your case. And the other way that we do it is to see it in people when it doesn't necessarily exist. I am now starting to come up with some ideas here about ways in which I have, I, how do you put it, um, manipulated. I have manipulated, uh, not consciously, obviously, but okay, here's a simple example. I don't do this as much anymore, or actually, I, I, really, I really don't do this much at all anymore, but I used to do this very often. I would go out on the town to drinks, to a club, to whatever, right? And I'd put a credit card down. And, you know, after a few drinks or whatever, I would start buying drinks for everyone. And I'd be like, oh, just put it on my tab. I would be buying drinks for everyone. And I would just say, oh, just put it on my tab. And then I basically would not consciously, I looked at it like, I'm just being friendly. I'm just, I don't care, you know? I was making good money and my... I thought of it as a good thing. Hey, I'm jovial. I'm sharing with everyone. How much of a how much of a bill are we talking about? Well, sometimes it was a thousand bucks. You know, it, it was really bad. Uh, but the thing I didn't realize was, first of all, I was carpet bombing these manipulations with people I didn't even know. I was almost like it was my invite. Now that I, I'm just realizing this now, as we're talking about this, I, it was a calling card. Hey, abuse me mm. here. I'm ready for abuse. I'll just buy you stuff for free, and you can come and get money from me. I expect nothing but bad treatment or no thanks in return. Uh, one example that comes to mind is uh, I used to be, I used to manage a team in one of my many jobs and uh, I threw a birthday party for myself and I invited all of my team and I paid for all of it. 
and it was a huge bill. And at least 80% of the people there, because hey, I'm just their boss, right? They show up, but they don't care about me. They don't need to care about me. They're, I'm just their boss, right? But subconsciously, I felt hurt by that. Mm. But I brought it upon myself. Mm. I invite all these people that I shouldn't be inviting to my party. I paid for the thing, and then subconsciously to feel like I've been abused. It's it was ridiculous, right? Right. And someone, you know, a friend at the time pointed out, like, well, "What are you doing?" And I'm like, oh, "I'm just, you know, it's a birthday, it's fun." But it was, and I, it's very interesting because I'm I'm just realizing I, I knew that that was uh, I obviously knew that these behaviors weren't healthy, but I, I hadn't connected the dots that it was an invitation for, hey, do you want to abuse me? Because I like abuse. Right. Right. Exactly. You know. Right. So this is an interesting. Uh, this is an interesting scenario. So you go to a bar and you have this impulse to start buying everyone drinks. Now there's probably other things that are converging in terms of your personality and the, and, sure. the, and the circumstance, but just going along the lines of protective identity. Well, I also put roofies in all of them. That's separate. <laughs> yeah. So you buy drinks for everybody. Now what this does is this basically creates a situation where there's a bunch of people around you. Now the people who are very sensitive to you will actually not capitalize on you. They'll probably want to buy their own drinks because they don't, well, I don't, you know, he's, I don't want, you know. Or are they forced to buy the next round or something like that? Right. But the vast majority of people, if you're at a bar and you offer to buy them a bunch of drinks, they'll say, okay, you know, why not? Right. Um, Now, from your perspective, you're seeing those people as being mean, abusive. They're being insensitive. Well, it's funny because initially the superficial me is going, great, new friends, right? Consciously. Consciously. And then in the, at the same time, subconsciously, non-verbally, I am feeling, quote, abused or disrespected or whatever. Right. But I just, I, it's just weird because I, I asked them to do nothing and I did everything and then I feel, you know, so I, don't, I definitely set up the situation. Right. Now, an, another part to this is that basically you've just shook the tree and all of the abusive people came falling out. That's right. <laughs> they, they see you as... Wow, he's a sucker. That's right. So if there's one out of a hundred people in the bar that night that is basically a jerk, like, you know, potentially antisocial or just manipulative in general or very selfish, they now see you as a target mm-hmm. and they will flock to you. They see, look at this guy. He's drunk. He's buying a bunch of drinks for everyone. He, he's a sucker. And so, so the jerks flock to you, whereas the people who don't want your money and don't want to hurt you are slowly moving away from you because they don't want you to spend money on them. Yeah, and so ironically, I might spend more time with these other people that are all of a sudden friendly. <laughs> right, they're very friendly to you That's because right. they see you as a, as a sucker. Just by that behavior of buying everyone drinks in that style, you pull abusive people toward you, you move non-abusive people away from you, you see normal people as being abusive. And then the next day you wake up and think, oh my God, everyone's a jerk. Where did my money go? Now, all that we just discussed in terms of this aspect from childhood to your current relationships, attracting people that emulate this insensitivity, projecting it onto people, manipulating others to exhibit this insensitivity, that is the full process of projective identification. Wow. And in addition to that, as you pointed out, that you are insensitive sometimes. I don't think I'm insensitive. I think I'm sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very hurt by that statement. Right. So that is a long process, right? Yeah. And you're a very aware person. You've been in therapy before. It's interesting, though, because today, as we were talking about this, 
I connected more dots than I had before about some of these. Like I never thought of me buying drinks. I always thought of it as a problem. But until this conversation, I never thought of it as me putting that calling card out. Right. And if I might take some liberties here, I know that there are people in your life that are known to be insensitive that you just don't even, you don't move away from those people, even though sometimes you look back and say, maybe I should have moved away from that person. Why was I taking that abuse from that person? Why was I allowing them to be insensitive and hurtful toward me without ever thinking, gee, should I even be in this relationship? And that's, again, it's a needed relationship for you to project your insensitivity out onto other people. As long as someone is more insensitive to you or distractingly insensitive, then you're not the insensitive one. They (laughs) they are. Sure. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, Okay. So uh, now that's just one aspect of one person that you wrote down, right? You wrote down four other people. I think a lot of the same things are true about Everyone I wrote down, okay. some of them more than others. So, so the idea is, is that the aspects of yourself that you're, you're the most ashamed of, you will desperately project onto other people and you will react strongly against those people and you will attract those people into your lives and you will keep them in your life and you will manipulate them to behave in that way and you will manipulate others that don't necessarily even have that aspect into behaving in that way, the way you did at the bar. Mm-hmm. So, um, so just that one interaction that was repeated as a childhood, that was when you were a child, um, it was very significant, can have aspects in all of your relationships, mm-hmm. particularly close relationships. Right. Yeah. So now that you're aware of it and your observing ego, as they call it, is bolstered, uh, the idea is, is that you can stop it. Some, <laughs> some, yeah. Now you laugh because it, it's a little silly, right? Because it, it's not that way. I mean, there is some silliness to it. At the same time, I, I mean, I've been able to put some things to improve some things and put some things at an arm's length a little bit better. But I am still fairly entangled with abusive situations. Okay. So the idea is is that through that process of disentangling yourself, is that what they call it? Yeah, sure. What is it? Is it? Isn't it detangling? Unentangling? Disentangling? Disen, unentangling? There's no word for it that we have? Disentangling. What's okay. wrong with disentangling? So in the process of disentangling, you need to be aware of this projective identification process in order to sift through those things that you are doing to yourself and those things that other people are doing to you. Um, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. So, so by being aware of this, this particular projective identification process, you can look at your relationships now and see which ones you are pulling closer to you in an attempt to keep those people close to you so you can project onto them. And so for those people, you might want to not pull close to you. Mm-hmm. You also want to look at relationships and situations where you're seeing them as being insensitive when they might not actually be that insensitive. And then you want to look at situations where you're actually making them insensitive to you. You're creating a situation where they are forced to be insensitive to you to some extent, and then you can react to them. So right. there's so several different ways of, of applying the awareness. Right. Okay. You know, one thing that comes to mind is I have a situation with someone that they owe me a lot of money. Yeah. We can say that the history of the relationship in terms of you loaning money to this person was 
potentially a way of sucking him into an insensitive position. Oh, but see, in this case, there was never... I, this was the first time I had ever lo- loaned money to this person. And, and, and it, it was interesting because I didn't see... I, there were warning signs because I, I know of other people that got into trouble with this person. Right. But I didn't, I didn't take that seriously. Well, or, you know, in object <laughs> relations terms, your, your, your ego in an attempt to project this insensitive part onto him, uh-huh. ignore, chose to ignore, chose to ignore it, it because it was helpful for the projective right, process. Right. And I created, uh, uh, a situation for myself where, um, I kind of went all in. I didn't even do like a trial run. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, essentially I facilitated the complete abuse. Now, right. of course it's, it's ultimately totally their fault for being abusive in this right. case. Okay. But <laughs> so now I'm going to, I'm going to take a leap uh-huh. and I, I want you to prepare yourself. I'm prepared. So your initial complaint about this person, this other, the, the original person you're talking about is that they're smart, but they're really dumb with money. <laughs> so you know where I'm going with this? No. <laughs> What are you talking about? <laughs> well, I think it, by the big smile on your face, I think you know that what I'm getting at is that perhaps you are exhibiting at the very same time that you're forcing other people into being insensitive to you, yeah. that you are actually enacting part of completely. that aspect. Completely. No, it's absolutely true. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a variant. I mean, essentially, I'm in, I'm, I was at risk. I say was because I feel like I pulled the reins on the horses right before the cliff. But I was at risk of going off the same cliff, but for different reasons, meaning I don't manipulate people for money. I don't get their money and then waste it. But I was giving all my money away, in essence, to the wrong causes, things, people, etc. Right. So it's not just that someone's being insensitive. That wasn't the the full complaint that you had about this person. It It was that they were kind of irresponsible with money. That's right. And to lend money to a known irresponsible person to loan a bunch of money to that person is irresponsible with money. That's right. So the weird thing about projective identification is we can both project and enact the exact same quality, but we don't know it because we, we color it in this way that makes it seem like it's their fault and not our fault. It's, it's completely true. And, and now that we're talking about it, I'm thinking, you know, well, you were saying a little bit ago, you were saying, well, as long as there's someone that we have a connection to that's worse than us, then it's, it, it allows us to not see these problems in ourselves. Because, hey, look at how bad that person is, right? And I'm only that way because they, are, yeah. they made me that way. Exactly. But that is a very good point, which is that I, as I'm thinking about it, I definitely have often justified either implicitly or explicitly to myself that... Well, sure, I did blah with money, but hey, I'm not ripping anyone off. I am not, uh, you know, any number of justifications or even to the point of like, and it's not affecting anyone other than myself. That's not true either. And so I have definitely exhibited directly that same problem. Right. 
So now that you're aware of it, you're supposed to be able to change it. But I, I don't necessarily agree with that the entirely. Ego, the ego approach. The- right. So in the object relations world, many writers emphasize the importance of bolstering the observing ego and reducing emotionality. So if you were in therapy right now, I would be doing what we're doing right now. Very intellectual, very exploratory. You're not, you're not experiencing any emotions right now that are, that are heightened, right? Right. So, in other words, they think that awareness of our unconscious material leads to change, whereas emotionality is a barrier to change. Not everyone believes this, but this is a common belief in the psychoanalytic community. I have direct counter evidence for me that that's not how I've improved. I, I will say that it's coupled with the conscious awareness, but that like one of the best examples I have where I really had a problem and I have since, since basically since I fixed it, I have not had a problem was the, um, I keep coming back to this one because it's a great example, the compulsive buying of clothing. Okay. That was not a sort of a problem. It was an absolute problem that started in 93 for me when I first had a a well-paying job at the time anyways, and I had too much extra money. And the, and the main thing I started first spending my money or wasting my money on was clothing. And it just recurred, recurred, recurred. It got more and more expensive. And, and even way past the point of conscious awareness about the problem and even having talked in therapy about it and everything, I still kept doing it. The thing that finally stopped it was an emotional, uh, an emotional realization coupled with the conscious realization. What was that? It was, um, I was in LA for, uh, and I was doing this, uh, it was like a musical show, a musical presentation, uh, a musical performance. Oh yeah. You've told the story. Yeah. yeah. Oh. And then basically I, I, I spent $3,000 on a jacket to make the show better. That was the implicit thing in my mind. Right. And we did the, the thing and, uh, it went fine. I actually got negative comments because of the jacket, which is totally like, and you know, counterintuitive, crazy to think about that made me feel like such an idiot inside mm. that that coupled with my conscious realizations that I had been having up until then, something finally clicked. Mm. Now, in terms of what the point I'm making right now, in terms of emotionality versus awareness, was there something particular about that moment that made it emotionally significant, different from others? One thing I'm, 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 I'm looking for is in relation to other people, somebody interacting with you okay. that created an emotion? Yeah, I, I, I do think so. The, the, the person in my life at the time that was affected, this was the first time that they actually kind of had gone along, like, let me go along with this foolish plan. Mm. I think every time before there was judgment and opposition. And for some reason, which is insane, this time they kind of just like, all right, well, and then let me kind of come to my own conclusion. There was something powerful about that because it, it removed the this abusive thing we're talking about. Right? right. So not only is it going along with, but it's also like a parent would. Yeah. Like a parent would contain a child's mistakes. Yeah. And it feels warm. It feels yeah. It feels loving. And and, and and it was because before it was me abusing that relationship. This time there was no abuse because. It was my, it, it, I, that person was not playing the victim. Okay. So in object relations term terms, previous to that moment, you and your mind had an, had an internalized interaction between someone being irresponsible and someone judging that person. Mm-hmm. Okay. So 
So in your in you in That's yourself right. in yourself previous to buying that jacket, whenever you would buy something, in, internally you would have the side of you that's like, I really want to buy this. I want to be free. I'm I want to I want this. And then another side of you that that's that's saying, don't buy that. That's irresponsible. But when someone else em- takes on that judgmental, you know, you can't buy that. Then you project because it's too difficult to that's contain right. that conflict on the inside. You're, how do you resolve that conflict? Be responsible, but I want to be free. I don't know how to do this. Someone, and then someone comes along and says, Umberto, be responsible. Now you project that be responsible part onto them and you no longer have it inside of you. So the conflict is now external. Mm-hmm. And now you only identify with one side of the equation, which keeps you locked into that behavior. Now, what this person did was they said, I'm not going to take that on anymore. Probably they might have even said, I feel like I'm being manipulated into always judging this person. I'm going to stop doing or something. Who knows? Yeah, I don't know if it was explicit that they did that, but it, it seemed to work out that way in retrospect. So now that person says, I'm not going to judge him anymore. I give up. I'm getting out of this equation or mm-hmm. whatever this person said. And then inside of you now, you don't have anyone to I don't have an audience. You don't have a person to, to get rid of your judgmental, yeah. uh, responsible side. Yeah, yeah. And now the internal conflict is happening and it was long enough and significant enough. And with enough data to back up the idea that you're not doing any, you're not doing yourself any good for you yes. to finally just stew in your own conflict and resolve it. So now let's move on to the part of your list where you identified people that you felt loving reactions to, where you felt the opposite of bad and you felt good with. Um, think about uh, so the the same process, in my opinion, applies. We normally apply projective identification only to things that are uh, bad aspects of ourselves and, and things and interactions that are negative. But um, in my belief, projective identification is potentially present in every emotional experience we have with everyone. Um, a lot of people would disagree with me on that, but it's kind of the way I see humans. So um, the idea is, is that when you were a child, you experienced loving, caring caregivers at times, and you felt loved and cared for. You internalized this interaction, this interaction of being cared for, uh, being loved, and loving. And so that gives you the capacity to love and to receive love. But the kind of love that you got when you were a child colors the kind of love that you project onto other people and react to. So does anything come to mind when I say that? As a child, I always saw... Uh, a behavior from my dad that he would so a positive behavior that he would do in my mind was that he he uh, he actually really cared for the downtrodden. I grew up in Colombia, so no mystery. There's a lot of downtrodden, right? Um, he was a uh, psycho uh, sorry a uh, um, psychiatrist, child psychiatrist, and he would do a lot of pro bono work. Also, uh, there were many cases where like. Uh, if we if we knew a family or we knew someone that was uh, either down on their luck or just didn't have a lot of money or whatever, right? Um, he was always very consciously encouraging me to like play with their kids, share my toys, be really nice to them, all these kind of things, right? You are getting love and attention from your dad for being nice and charitable, mm-hmm. so that's important. Um, also, you're seeing your dad being charitable and nice to others and loving others, and these others you know, liking or uh, appreciating his, his love. So you are internalizing that all those interactions. And so love is connected with charity. 
as I grew up, uh, uh, not consciously, but I, I, I would befriend people that are a little uh, unusual. <laughs> uh, um, needy? They can be needy, but, but sometimes it's like they're misunderstood or, or they have, uh, I mean, they might have social challenges or things like that. Outcasts. Could be outcasts. Yeah. So in some cases they're outcasts. Uh, I would, I didn't know at the time for some reason, but now I'm realizing through this conversation that that kind of makes sense is that it was me reenacting that those behaviors I, I learned. And so the, the idea was even in, I remember in, in junior high and then in high school, I'd have my set of friends, right? Like from different social groups. And I always had one or two that I was friends with that I would spend plenty of time with that a lot of my other friends didn't really like them or didn't want to spend much time around them because they were a little weird, a little this. But I actually enjoyed my time with them. So again, tying it back to your childhood, if we just look at your father, you're observing your father being loving towards others and others appreciating his caring. And they are outcasts, they're needy, they, they um, are... Um, special needs cases, so to speak. Yes, yeah. And and so you internalize that interaction, and that on the and, inter, and that interaction is associated with warm feelings, good feelings. And, and and keeping in mind, like me, I was also an outcast and weird in my own ways, and I would receive extra attention from several family members, including my dad. But several, there were key family members that showed me a lot of love and attention. So your dad cared for you mm-hmm. in a way that was, I mean, for lack of a better term, charitable. Yes. And key members of, and other key members of my family okay. also showed that to me or behaved that way to okay. me. So that's even more close to home than your dad treating others that way. That's people treating you that way. That's right. And you're getting love and attention. Again, this is all associated with good feelings. It's that's associated right. with love and caring. And, and the other person feels good about giving to you and you feel good because they're giving to you. And it's all one big love fest. Okay. So you internalize that process. You observing yourself being cared for, other people caring for you in this specific way. And then you recreate it in your later life. Yeah. There's nothing just functional about that it's good right um you can be generous i know that about you that you can be generous to a lot of people and that without expectation of them giving back and other people can feel cared for in that way now it's interesting that this kind of dovetails a little bit with getting abused by people right yeah what happens it's like everything in life right there's that that coin right one side is the good side of the coin, and then there's a flip side of the coin. So, so that makes sense. So, again, the analysis is, is that you look for people that exhibit that and you, so that you can have this recreation of this childhood interaction. You might even project it onto people. You might even see people as more in need or more misfitty or more outcast or more, I don't know what you would call it, more of that side. Than they actually are. Yeah. Than, than they actually yes, are. That's true. Um, because it it enables you to care for them in your template way. That's true. Yeah. So you might also manipulate others to become more outcast so that you can care for them in that way. And again, right. I don't want to say this is a bad thing. Love is great, and however we can get it in life, right. that's good. And this is key, and I'm just thinking about this. I have a counterexample of someone in, very important to me in my life that for a long time when I was young, they mainly expressed their relationship with me through gifts, through, through toys and things like that. Gave you toys? Yes. And that actually left a very bad feeling inside of me. 
Well, let me ask you this. Getting gifts from people, was that an excuse to not spend time with you? Uh, Well, at least this one person, yes. Okay. Uh, Or at least, I don't know if it's the excuse, but it was the remediation, part of the remediation. So the person is not spending time with you. That's right. You're hurt by that. That's right. And then they send you gifts. That's right. So, So getting gifts is associated with that interaction for you. Wow. And hence... Yes, I actually, for, oh my gosh, that's interesting. I actually turn away favors all the time. I don't ask for favors and, and I don't let people pay for me. I, I, that's weird. I mean, it's interesting because there is probably that association is that like, as soon as you start doing nice things for me that, that are like gifty or money, I start feeling that it's, it's, I mean, I'm saying this now, but it might be that I feel that you're not wanting to spend time with me or something like that. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. I never thought of that. Yeah. Huh. All right. So what do you think of the concept of projective identification? It seems very powerful. I, I, I feel like I had worked on some of this in my therapy. Not necessarily. We didn't. I don't know. We called it out explicitly like this. Um, it seems very powerful. Even just today, going through this process, I've connected more dots than I had before about some things that I've thought a lot about, Mm. which is very interesting. I think that you're a very good subject to include in a conversation about projective identification because you're very aware and and you're um, you're, uh, confident enough or whatever to be vulnerable about this sort of thing. Well, no one's listening to this, right? (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't always go over very well with people. I, I walk my students through this process, um, as a way of demonstrating the concept and as a way for them to be aware of their own issues so that they don't bring those into the therapy room as therapists themselves. And I've seen various different reactions over the years. Um, some people, Uh, take to it very well like you do and feel like it resonates and are mature enough to identify those aspects of themselves that are unfortunate and other people they just can't tolerate acknowledging those aspects of themselves and become very defensive and have elaborate ways of denying these aspects are true truly inside of them Um, I will also say uh, as an asterisk asterisk to this entire conversation is that there's no scientific proof that any of this is real Um, it's all just philosophy it's all just guesswork it's a way of seeing people there's no way I can prove that this process actually occurs Um, It seems to ring true for me, but someone else would come along and say that everything I've said is complete hogwash and I wouldn't have any way to prove them wrong. So, like, there's no concrete studies showing, for example, correlation of life partner choice to childhood experiences? Well, there is, but there are possible other explanations Mm -hmm. or other ways of looking at it. Plus, it's really hard to study this sort of thing because... How do you measure one's negative experience as opposed to someone else's negative experience? How, how much, I mean, one of the possibilities is that you are the way that you are and that you have, and it has nothing to do with your experiences, but the way that you are colored every single experience you had into seeing it the way that you see it and that you currently see it that same way, because that's the way that you are. And so you've always seen the world in that way. And when we look back on your childhood, you see the same things that you see now, because that's just the way that you are. And so we're connecting past to the present, but, but you've always been that way. 
So it doesn't matter what happens to you. You're, you're the way that you are. I can't argue with that. I don't believe that to be yeah, true. I, I mean, in my experience, personally, the coincidences would be too staggering. Like, yeah. like well, then why is this? Why is this? Why is this? Why is it? You know, I, I could just map so many things to experiences and to behaviors that I saw in adults that it's it, it would seem like the biggest coincidence ever. <laughs> it does seem that way, but that's yeah. because I think you see the world the way I do. All right, tougher bluff. Tougher bluff. Now, I was trying to think of a theme to go with for tougher bluff that related to projective identification, and I thought about projection, and I thought about projectors, and things we project like movies like movies exactly Woo. so let's let's go with tougher bluff movie theme that's my theme do you have a theme uh yeah i'll go with movies too i'll double okay. down okay. double dip double all scotch right. all right so all this information that i have today i gathered from the guardian uk website so oh you're going deep on this it's it, gonna do things like who played han solo in the star wars episode four <laughs> actually han solo will come up later oh really? okay, okay. So, um, if any of the information is incorrect, take it up with the Guardian. All right. All right. So, Tougher Bluff. In 2006, vandals changed the sign to read Hollyweed to applaud newly loosened marijuana laws instead of Hollywood. Hmm. Hollyweed. I will say tough. I could see that happening. Yeah, you could see it happening. Actually, it's Bluff. Oh. It happened in 1976. What? Yeah. I'd never heard of this. No. That's crazy. 1976, they oh changed Hollywood to Hollyweed to apply newly loosened marijuana laws. <laughs> I, th- I don't think they had That's any idea insane. how long it would take for the laws to actually truly loosen, right? Yeah. Okay. That's crazy. All right. So, uh, tough or bluff? Tough or bluff? The original intended female protagonist of the original Alien was, in fact, Kathleen, T- Kathleen Turner. Oh my god, Kathleen Turner. It's so funny when you think about these other characters playing, these other actors playing these characters. Yeah, romancing you just, the Nile or whatever. Because you, the, the you can't see her doing that, but of course, if she were in the movie, then she would be the only person for that movie, is That's my true. guess, right? I'm going to say tough because I would love to see her in that role. Yeah, it would have been great. Uh, bluff. I couldn't even, I was trying to think of another female actress. Like, <laughs> no, but, but uh, the thing was, uh, with with Sigourney is that she was a very unlikely cast because she has a unique look to her. She's not your typical like hot female actress or whatever. She um, she had a good body, but all right. So uh, this is not a tough for bluff exactly. It's a multi multiple tough for bluff. Okay. All right. Which of these movie titles are actual movies that were made? And which are not, okay? Oh, okay. So I'm going to say the movie titles uh, once all the way through, and then I'll go through each one, okay, and you okay. can say which one. All right. all right. Zombies on Broadway. Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. <laughs> Umberto D. <laughs> the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed-up zombies. Oh, dad, poor dad, mama's hung you in the closet, and I'm feeling so sad. Uh, <laughs> Cotton picking chicken pickers. Uh, I want all these to be true. <laughs> Surf Nazis must die. <laughs> Night of the day of the dawn of the son of the bride of the return of the terror. <laughs> and simply Kirk. 
Kirk. Okay. All right. So zombies on Broadway. Tough or bluff? Tough. Okay. I'm going to mark down your answers. Okay. Okay. Yes. Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. <laughs> bluff. Umberto D. No. Vampire Hunter D. I don't know about Umberto D. Bluff. The incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies. <laughs> Tough. There's no way, though. I'm sure. Tough. <laughs> oh, dad, poor dad. Mama's hung you in the closet, and I'm feeling so sad. No one could have come up with that unless they came up for it with a movie. So it's, it's got to be tough. <laughs> <laughs> Cotton picking chicken pickers. Bluff. Surf Nazis must die. Tough. I've seen it. You have? <laughs> yes. Oh, you have? Night of the day of the dawn of the sun of the bride of the return of the terror. What is this like a college project? I, sh- uh, no, bluff. Come on, I'm not. A, I'm not going to reduce myself to this. <laughs> Kirk. Uh, tough. Why not? All right. You want to know the answers? Yes. <laughs> They're all tough. They're all true. They're all real titles. Yeah. Wow. Some of those are. They have to be projects, like high school projects. <laughs> I don't know, man. Oh, dad, poor dad, mama's hung you in the closet, and I'm feeling so sad. Is that like Black Snake Moan or something? Well, so, so Zombies on Broadway was 1945. Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla in 1952. Was that Bella Lugosi, actually? Like, it was him. Okay. I don't, I don't know. Umberto D. is in 1952. Huh. The Incredibly Strange Creatures Who Stopped Living and Became Mixed Up Zombies, 1967. <laughs> they didn't have the catchiness yet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Dad, Poor Dad, Mama's Hung You in the Closet, and I'm Feeling So Sad, 1967. Cotton pi- Picking Chicken Pickers, 1967. 67 was a good year for weird movie titles. <laughs> yeah. uh, Surf Nazis Must Die, 1987. You saw that? I did see that. Not in the theaters, but I, I, I rented that in high, in high school. Actually. What's it about? It's essentially there's a there's beach there are uh, Nazis and there are you know kids that are opposing them or whatever and, and <laughs> it's they, really stupid and they surf <laughs> there was surfing in it yes <laughs> night of the day of the dawn of the sun of the bride of the return of the terror was 1991 oh, and Jesus. and Kirk was 2009 okay well, all right your turn <laughs> all right um, tougher bluff. Uh, the Roger Moore was the second actor to play James Bond in a major motion picture. Roger Moore was the second James Bond. Uh, Roger Moore was the second James Bond. I think that's tough because I think it was Sean Connery, Roger Moore for one movie, and then George Lazenby for or no George no da 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 bluff. It was Sean Connery, George Lazenby, then Sean Connery again, and then Roger Moore. I think. Is that your final answer? That's my final answer. Oh, okay. yes. Uh, yes, that's, that's right. Um, Sean Connery was on a string of hits. Then they did a one-off for your Majesty's Secret Service. And then Sean Connery came back. And then, then Roger Moore started off. But then... Okay, actually, I'll, I'll reserve the other one. <laughs> okay. All right. So, uh, almost cast alternatives in famous film roles. All right? Now, this is not... I'm not going to do Tougher Bluff. I'm going to have you just... Ch- Okay. Try to guess the actor. Okay. And I'll give you a hint if you have if you have trouble. Okay. All right. So the role of Indiana Jones in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, originally, the actual cast was Harrison Ford, who was almost cast. Tom Selleck. Oh, my God. I knew that. I knew that. No, I, I read that. Actually, the other day I got confused, though, because I thought that it was 
Han Solo? That Tom okay. Solo? Okay. okay. So, the role of Han Solo okay. in Star Wars actual cast Harrison Ford, who was almost cast as Han Solo. Um, <clears throat> uh, right, right, right. So, Dennis Quaid. No. He was considered. Oh. Darn it. But it was obviously someone else. Okay. Let um, me give you a hint. Sure. More cowbell. Oh, no way. Christopher? Yeah. Walking? Yeah. That would have been weird. I know. But Dennis Quaid was in the running. Oh, was he? Yeah. Dennis Quaid? Uh, was he old enough yeah, yet at that yeah. point? All right. Uh, the role of Deckard in Blade Runner. Again, Harrison Ford, who was almost cast. Keith Harris. <laughs> That's his DJ name, Deckard. Oh. <laughs> All right. Um, so, uh, Harrison Ford, Deckard. Oh, I think I'd heard this too, but... It's very, very different from Burt Harrison Reynolds. Uh, it's even more different. Very different, huh? But a contemporary kind of... A massively famous actor who has won many Oscars. Really? And goes back to the 60s through the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s. What? Okay. Uh, Al Pacino. Okay, it's in that category. Robert De Niro. It's in that category. Oh, my God. I'm out of names. Uh, Harvey Keitel. I don't know. <laughs> uh, hint. Little Big Man. Little Big Man. Have you seen that movie? Uh-uh. Oh, that's one of my favorite movies. Dustin Hoffman. No way. Can you see Dustin Hoffman as Deckard in Blade Runner? It would have been a different movie. All right. The role of Vito Corleone in The Godfather was actually Marlon Brando, of course, who was almost cast as Vito Corleone. <laughs> Charlton Heston. Mm-mm. I, I don't He's an actor and a singer. He's more known Frank for... Frank Sinatra. Yeah. Really? Yeah. All right. So the character of Rocky in the movie Rocky. Come on. He wrote it. I know. No. Sylvester, Sylvester Stallone, of course, wrote and acted in that movie. Did he direct it too? Yeah. All right. So who was almost cast? Now, at the time, Rocky was what, like mid-late mid, 70s, right? Yeah. Who? He, this actor was huge at the time. and That's... And really not... Ever again, but huge in the late seventies. That's crazy. There's no way who could have played it better than him. Um, Ryan O'Neill. I don't even know who that is. Oh, you don't? No. He, well, it's, it's, that's what I'm saying. Like after the seventies, early eighties, he was he was nothing. But at the huge. time, he was huge. Really? Okay. So last one. The role, the Terminator in the movie, the Terminator, <laughs> Come on. was actually. Arnold Schwarzenegger, of course. Of course. Who, how could it be anyone else? But it was almost, the part was almost given to blank. Uh, Lou Ferrigno? I, uh, no. Not a buff guy? Um, he might have been kind of buff at the time, but, but not, not like. Longgren? Not that buff. I'll give you some hints. I'll give okay. you some hints. He's black. Uh, Samuel Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh,. Was an actor who used to be a football player. Oh, OJ? Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, that would have been so appropriate. Can you see OJ Simpson as the Terminator? I can't imagine OJ hurting a fly. And plus, all those classic um, lines that have Arnold's accent. I'll be back. I'll be back. <laughs> you know, can you imagine if it was OJ Simpson? Hey, I'll be back. Yo, I'll be back. I'll be back. Yeah. All right, you got one more? Tough or bluff? In the original three Star Wars movies, uh, episodes four through six, there there were a total of two actors that played Emperor Palpatine. Oh, oh, 
Tefer Bluff. <laughs> I was like, oh, I didn't know that. Um, Don't take my word for it. <laughs> a total of two characters. Well, he doesn't two come... Two actors that played Emperor Palpatine. Well, he was only... That character was only in five and six by two different actors. I will say bluff that it's the same guy because they were made pretty close together. Well, do you remember? So at Star Wars, they didn't show him. In Empire, he has the little hollow communication with a very indistinct looking and it doesn't you know, and it doesn't talk he, he you just see him you see Darth Vader talking to him and I, I don't remember if he says anything oh. but you see the face so it's probably two but it's really cloaked probably two different characters and then in return is when you finally see the dude right so it must be tough so tough okay, okay. now oh it's the same dude not oh. only that but this is what I didn't realize it was the same actor that played him in the new movies that's crazy. Because he would have been so, right? Yeah. Like old, young, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's crazy because he must have been really young in the first yeah. movies. That's interesting. Well, how would you cast an emperor? That's a well, that would have been a better tougher bluff. It's the same character uh, for all six But movies. I thought you already knew that. I didn't know that. Okay. But if I knew it for the No, no. I, well, you're right. Ah, that's dumb. <laughs> but I thought, I thought you might. That's true. That's okay. So it's the same. Every time the emperor is depicted on the screen, it's the Apparently, same guy. Yeah. That is crazy. Well, the, one of the things that I thought when I saw Emperor Palpatine uh, first have that voice, you know, that... These are not the blah, you know, that, that, that real evil voice. I thought, wow, that guy in episode one or two, whenever that voice first emerges, that guy has, has the return of the Jedi guy down, down pat. Down pat. <laughs> I thought, how did they find this guy who could talk so similar? Right. And he even kind of looks like him. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, I do think, like, how, how old was he? I guess it wasn't as far apart as we think. Return was filmed in 83. Yeah, 83-ish. And the other the other ones were filmed in ninety nine or something like that. Yeah, it's true because those years for us were very formative. So formative, for, so it's an eternity. Yeah, but if in reality, was thirty. It was, yeah, it was like. And 60. now they were fifty or sixty. But, right, yeah. right. Or well, they'd be thirty and then forty five. Yeah, actually, so it's not that bad. No, yeah. It, but it seems like how could the same person have played? Yeah, 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 yeah. One was in BC, the other one yeah. was in AD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. All right, well, that does it. Oh, no. Do you have any news? I do. I have a couple of, uh, of news items. All right, so there's a new app for iPhone that lets blind people see, uh, so to speak, through crowdsourcing. Are you familiar with crowdsourcing? Crowdsourcing is the idea of uh, you put the crowds to work for free so that, for example, Wikipedia is crowdsourced. There's no one getting paid to write Wikipedia articles, or at least I don't think there might be a couple of curators. But in general, people update it. No, one's, no one gets paid to do so. You just go, if you, if you want to put a new Wikipedia article, you put it up. Someone might debate it or, or you know, change your text and whatnot. It's crowdsourced. What, what they're doing is they take a picture with their smartphone, with their iPhone. And, it, uh, this and they thing, upload the picture and then blind people look at the picture. They upload it through this application, Viswiz. Uh, and using something that Amazon uh, has called, uh, they have a mechanical Turk service. Are you familiar with Mechanical Turk? Oh my God, what? <laughs> Mechanical Turk is a concept from back in a long time ago uh, where it, it appeared to be a robot, but inside the robot there was an actual person operating it. Was it a Turk? It, it, it was uh, in Turkey, I guess, but <laughs> it was a Turk, yeah. So, it, but that's neither here nor there. The point is that people, real people, through this Amazon service, 
they look at the picture and anyone can go and say, oh yeah, that's an apple. Okay. So the blind person goes, takes the picture through this app within, I don't know, in some cases a few seconds, some cases minutes or whatever, but someone identifies it and then they get, it probably reads it out to them or whatever. It says what it is. Uh, the power of crowds is so powerful that in most cases, this probably is fairly immediate. Like there's people that use this app that, that just volunteer to identify this stuff for the, for the blindfold. So there's a whole slew of people sitting in front of their computer, just looking at pictures that pop up and type and typing in what they're, that's right. All right. So, um, another, uh, news item, there's been some research out of the Northwestern university that lifelong musical training can offset aging brain, like, you know, things that start going away in your, in your brain function. Uh, they did a study with nine, uh, 18 musicians and 19 non-musicians. Not sure why there was a discrepancy of one, but I'm sure someone dropped off or something. Uh, ages 45 to 65. They did analysis of the people that are active musicians and then the other people are not active musicians. And they studied speech, uh, speech within noise recognition. So like when you can p- pick off speech within a crowd, uh, auditory uh, working memory, uh, visual memory, temporal and spatial location awareness and memory, uh, and a few other things, including apparently including physical physical things too, but mostly uh, focusing on these uh, on these memory and recognition and spatial awareness. Uh, and they statistically concluded that there was there was a a, a positive a, a clear positive effect to the musical folks in uh, having still uh, higher ratings on these categories. Right. They retained their functioning. Yeah. Right. Whereas yeah. the non-musicians had degraded functioning. I wonder though, because the, I'm sure you didn't read the, the full study. You're probably just looking at it. 150 pages. I read. <laughs> Cause I'm wondering about the method because, um, if you are a musician, you're more likely to be interacting with other people, right? You're more likely to be getting out of the house. Yeah, I think that, that what they didn't cover here is the musicians are probably high on heroin and cocaine and other things. <laughs> That's probably what's enhancing their brain capacity. Exactly. <laughs> um, but if we just go by the conclusion that uh, being an active musician retains brain functioning, that is in line with a lot of thinking today, that if you, use, if you don't use it, you lose it, right? Yep. You got to use your brain, you got to use your body, or else it starts to atrophy. That's right. Which makes sense. That's right. All right. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. I think it was a very interesting episode. What do you think? I think so, too. Yeah. I, I learned a ton. Yeah. So, uh, please take care of yourself, and we will... I never know what to say at the end of these episodes. Take, please take care of yourself. And take care of others around you. And don't project your problems onto them, lest they be projected back onto you. <laughs> well, well said. Any songs about projective identification? <laughs> Projection. Uh, Projection. Injection. What's, <laughs> what's your... <laughs> How about a song about OJ? If the gloves don't fit. You, you must quit. But what about Raiders of the Last Ark? Do you remember the theme song to that? Oh, uh, yeah, of course. Dun da 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 da
See now, now Rick, I think it was all written by John Williams, right? Yeah. It's funny because the monster. The 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 Raiders of the Lost Ark song is much more happy and jovial than, yes, than the Star Wars. And then I always got confused with the Superman theme when yeah. I was a kid, and, and and the Star Wars theme, the, not the whole yeah. thing, but because yeah. the Superman starts. See, I'm getting confused right now. That's Star Wars. So that Superman is. Great success.